Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. And this time on the programme, the Irish artist-physicist team sending an artwork to the International Space Station, Paddy Woodworth on the only book about hawks you'll ever need, and collective art action in Ennis Tymon. But we begin this time with the fidgetal life of cardigans. Last year, when the former One Direction person Harry Styles was pictured in a crochet garment, it inspired a tick trend of fans making their own. Designer J.W. Anderson pitched in by providing the pattern before eventually releasing a digital version of the garment, a computer model of it, which he auctioned as an NFT for charity. Who's with me so far? All of this action is just some of the most visible activity in the exploding world of digital fashion, from virtual couture to synthetic models, some of which our correspondent Emilio Mahony Brady helped Culturefile navigate. Tell us a little bit about what happened to get people so excited about Harry Styles' cardigan. Some, somewhere it said the most talked about cardigan of the year or even the decade. I'm not really sure how much um, my average year <laughs> contains cardigan discussion. How much should it contain? <laughs> Quite a lot, I would say. Not that I would ever consider myself to be a Harry Styles expert, but I've definitely noticed being sort of the target demographic of of his fans that ever since he left One Direction and sort of struck out as an independent artist in his own right, he has been generating a lot of mainstream interest when it comes to what he wears. And so, the, you know, the simple act of him wearing this multicoloured crochet cardigan to a rehearsal last year among his fan base would always spark interest but yes I think it was it was one of those things hard to anticipate what will go viral and when The particular reaction of people to start making their own crochet was kind of interesting though. This is again sort of the interesting sort of dichotomy of what's been happening with, with people during the pandemic because you know on the one hand you have the cottagecore aesthetic you have a lot of consumers that are wanting to embrace the tangible, the tactile they're wanting to teach themselves how to handcraft garments and you know crochet cardigans in this instance and replicate whatever their sort of famous um or or rather their their favorite sort of celebrities or public figures are wearing but then on the flip side you have something like the digital fashion phenomenon where you know people people are enabled to sport couture made from impossible materials you know they're they're talking about how digital fashion really pushes the constraints of the physical world even down to creating gravity defying looks that are fashioned out of ice cream or clouds you know materiality that couldn't exist in the tangible realm digital fashion it, it is quite literally that melding of physical and digital it digital fashion typically refers to pieces that were originally physical and they have been reproduced as digital pieces. A striking example of this is this J.W. Anderson crochet cardigan that went viral last year when it was worn by Harry Styles. And there were all manner of, you know, knitting patterns circulating on the internet for people trying to replicate this handcrafted piece. And a team of visual effects artists from XY Drobe ended up replicating the piece as J.W. Anderson's first fashion NFT. So the process, I think it took something like 300 hours. Yeah, every piece of the yarn was built in 3D before it was woven together and um, for each of the six different knit patterns that make up the piece. So they they wanted to perfectly replicate every imperfection, every color, every decision that was made when the piece was crafted by hand. I definitely do find it an interesting phenomenon because, you know, there's a lot of people who are 
craving the handcrafted, craving things that are tangible and tactile, having spent the last couple of years kind of encircled by screens. And previous to that as well, I think, you know, the flatness of looking at fashion on a screen versus being able to hold something in your hands. And, you know, digital fashion at this point in time doesn't possess those tangible qualities in any way. But I guess with with digital, they are attempting to form the best of both worlds. You know, in an ideal world, you'll have access to the physical piece. You'll be able to hold it in your hands <laughs> if it's financially feasible for you to, to access it. And you can tap into the digital version of it and, you know, dress up your avatar as you navigate these various virtual worlds currently being constructed. This sort of does point to where we first saw kind of digital clothes emerging because, you know, they didn't arrive with NFTs and so there was a whole world where they existed. I think for anyone like myself who either grew up playing video games or, you know, has has gotten into gaming at any age or during the pandemic, you can very much see that the, the obvious predecessor to this form of virtual fashion is gaming, is, you know, being able to to purchase skins as they're called, you know, downloadable outfits, fashion content for usually fictitious characters in a game. I mean, anyone who tapped into The Sims, I remember there were these expansion packs in the late 2000s uh, that, funnily enough, H&M did a collaboration all the way back in 2007 um, with The Sims that I remember purchasing where, you know, you could download their latest collection and put it onto their sim and and it's interesting to see how it's sort of come full full circle now with this virtual fashion collection that they're collaborating on with DressX which is a, a natively digital fashion house whereby they are creating pieces not for you to dress you know a fictitious avatar in a game but to dress your own digital avatar so so a, a fast fashion giant like H&M has actually been cognizant of the benefits and the popularity of digital dressing for quite some time. You're talking about then fashion houses that are digital clothes manufacturers only. Yes, absolutely. The digitally native fashion houses such as DressX, such as the Fabricant. Tell us about uh, DressX because this is this has a sort of long, uh, a, a longer history than most of them and it was originally about sort of decorating a photo for for use on Instagram. Again, because we're, we're still looking at the, you know, the early iterations of the metaversal experience, you know, the the reports that have been circulating since certainly January of, you know, that we'll be living in in the metaverse, we'll be immersed in metaversal living come come 2030, is if that does transpire, is still a long way away. So the majority of of the target demographic of companies like DressX are people who want to look at a sort of ancillary mode of fashion consumption for content creation. So I think they are cognizant that a lot of the people who want to tap into virtual fashion are doing so for social media clout. In DressX, I can imagine that the photograph has lots of uses as, as an avatar on various sites. If you're producing something like the Harry Styles cardigan as a 3D model, is that something that can be used with lots of different systems or is there a, a kind of ecosystem for different design houses? Something like the digital piece. I think so much of the selling point of, of buying into fashion NFTs is the, the modular appeal, is the adaptability in that regard. The fact that you would be able to roam, um, you know, not across just virtual worlds that are in existence, but even ones that haven't haven't yet been constructed from from the ground up. So I do think there is inherently an adaptability within these pieces that consumers will be able to, 
irrespective of where their avatars are going, they'll be able to take their cardigans with them. <laughs> so in the future, there will be cardigans. That's a relief. Amelia Brady-Brown there. Now, OK, so you've got seven galleries, five art venues and two bookshops. How can you make your town an art destination? That's the question they've been asking and answering in Ennis Tymon, County Clare. And the answer is that it helps if you're embedded in a landscape that boosts footfall and seeps into the work on display. Culture Files' Louise McMahon wandered from Parliament Street through Market Square to Main Street on the Ennis Tymon Art Trail. Hi, how are you? Hello, nice to meet you. Welcome to the gallery. My name is Sarah Faust. I've got a little gallery full of paintings and craft and lots of art. Over the time where we were isolated and the gallery was closed, I created a body of work of portraits. But then I also took as an inspiration the very, very local landscapes. At one point it was within the two kilometres and at another point it was within the five kilometres. We were just walking every day. Just to get out of the house and to see people at a distance and say hello and we got to know our neighbours really well and um, that landscape was the landscape that I portrayed in the isolation series. We set up the art trail in 2016. A few art galleries had opened independent of each other in Ennistymon. I would say get a hold of the map and you can start at any point on the trail. Let's start here at Faust Gallery. Right next door is Lana Mulcree, which is Michelle Gunning's beautiful ceramics gallery. So you continue on down as if you're turning toward the Falls Hotel. You'll pass a beautiful gallery called the Secret Vault Gallery. All the stuff that's made here is made by the artists. It's a cooperative gallery with five different it's artists. Tourists, it's it's going to make the detour to many time for one gallery, but if you can present a few... If you turn the other way... It might be worth it, you know. And you go toward Parliament Street, you'll first come to Stack's Corner, which is where Jean Moran has her beautiful loom and uh, weavings. Across the street from Jean, you'll find Burns Violin Shop and Art Gallery. And Brendan does beautiful watercolours there of the main street. Continue on and you'll land at the Port Courthouse Gallery. Gallery has been here for um, over 20 years. On Parliament Street. It's a large public gallery with two exhibition spaces. And at any given time, you'll probably find two beautiful exhibitions of diverse and unusual artwork. I'm from Belgium originally. I used to come for holidays, mainly in winter actually. And I had been looking for kind of actually a mountain top to paint skies. But I found it on the coast road in Fenor, Galway Bay, um, the skies there. So that's basically why I, um, I came to live here. Let's wander. Hello, how are you? Hi, Welcome to Lana <laughs> This is Doolin and this is Finnegan. <laughs> my sales assistants. <laughs> It's actually really lovely sometimes when I have people come in and they tell me stories of that phrase, you know, of a mother kind of pulling her little one in and saying, ah, Lana Machree. The name for me originated because of the art therapy work that I do. So I do a lot of work with children and families. But also, I guess it extends to the idea of that inner child artist that I think is in each and every one of us. 
And one of the things I love about ceramics is, you know, you're using clay so you can make so many different marks and impressions with all different items from nature. Everything you could imagine, literally, you can impress into the clay. So I do use stones, leaves, shells, little twigs, lots of things like that to leave different marks. I would spend a lot of time walking the local beaches with the dogs and I guess driftwood is probably the thing I'd use the most. As I find pieces of driftwood, ideas pop into my head. What I tend to do is make a bowl and attach them and it ends up being what I call a hanging spoon. Hello, I'm Jean. Welcome to Irish Handweaves. I'm here at Stacks in the Main Street in Timon. I weave, I kind of create one-off pieces, contemporary pieces, based kind of on the traditional styles. Like I'd be drawn to the traditional Aaron Chris. I think everybody loves herringbone and the traditional weaves, but I would bring in my own slant into each piece. Well, I suppose a lot of people haven't seen spinning wheels in their life, particularly children. They would have come across them in like fairy tales, you know, Rumpelstiltskin, the straw into the gold. So for them, it's they walk in and they actually see the spinning wheel in action. So from their minds, it's kind of transports the spinning wheel from the book, maybe, you know, uh, Sleeping Beauty to real life where they actually see it. And, you know, they can question, oh, I wonder why she pricked her finger or what's that. And for them, all of a sudden it's real and then they can see the practicality of it as well, that it's actually making uh, yarn wool. Some people, I think, had the wrong impression that we were competing with each other. And I think as artists, we were more aware of the fact that we're stronger together. We said, listen, let's make that actually visible. We're trying to make, in this time, in the art capital of County Clare, we might have already be it, you know. <laughs> the voices of the Ennis Time and Art Trail there, and the reporter was Louise McMahon. And art in outer space next, with the Dublin Artist Physicist team sending their work to an exhibition on the International Space Station. Artists Gillian Fitzpatrick and Justin Donnelly of TUD's School of Physics have collaborated on a micro-artwork, which, along with 63 other works no bigger than a cubic centimetre, will be launched on a rocket destined for display in outer space. Gillian Fitzpatrick and Justin Donnelly talk to Culturefile about dreams of interstellar life about John Donne and the promise of a museum on the moon. I'm just about old enough that I can actually remember the Apollo, the Apollo 11 moon landing. I was, I was a very small child and I have a fuzzy memory of uh, sitting on the sofa beside my mum and her, and her turning around to me and saying, this is very important. As a small child, there was no kind of doubt in my mind that we were going to be living on the moon and travelling out into the solar system. And it just created a very powerful kind of idea in my head which came to have a, have a, a strong influence on my creative work years later. In the 50s and 60s, it was tied in with, I guess, wrapped in with old ideas around colonialism and, you know, planting a flag for your nation. And now it's become more a more kind of a corporate endeavour. Prepare yourself for the moonship journey. Journey on the moonship. Prepare yourself for the moonship journey.
wasn't always like that. Um, there is a link to this idea that space exploration was a moral alternative to war, that the outward tendencies of our psyche to push outwards and to uh, explore, that, that they would, if not given somewhere to explore, that they would curdle into war and negativity. So um, th some people in the past have pushed this idea that um, it could actually be very good for peace. And we see this in the International Space Station. There's quite a lot of great cooperation going on there between nations. It's almost like a United Nations in space. What is happening with the uh, Moon Gallery is one of the positive aspects of a kind of opening up of, of uh, space to, to a more varied sort of travellers. Tell us about Moon Gallery, what it is. It's a selection of 64 artworks from an international group of artists um, and the entire gallery, which is 64 artworks, will sit into a 8 by 8 centimetre grid. So every single artwork has to fit into a 1 centimetre cube. The Moon Gallery is based in Amsterdam. Its aims as a platform to provide, you know, interdisciplinary cooperation between arts and science and technology. And the idea is that when people eventually start to move away from the planet and start living on places like the moon or even getting to Mars, that art and culture will go with them. This is called the Moon Gallery, and the, the ultimate goal is to have a piece of art on the moon. So this particular mission is called Moon Gallery Test Flight. Mm -hmm. So it's going to, to the International Space Station, and we'll be up there for much of this year. The main restriction was that we were contained in a volume of one cubic centimetre, and that really was the germ of the idea because our thoughts went to, well, okay, something has got to fold up probably, either be very small or, or be something that big that folds up. So what folds up and what, and I guess the idea of space and folding up brought to mind um, the idea of a solar sail. And a solar sail is a piece of technology that's, um, it relies on the idea that it turns out that light exerts a very gentle but a steady pressure on objects in space. So if we have a reflective sail attached to a spacecraft, it can, it can catch that sunlight and it can sail on it without using any fuel. So it's a very beautiful romantic image and it's technically um, feasible and has been used. There are ships up there currently being powered by this. Yeah, there, there's a satellite, I think, by the uh, Planetary Society that's been in orbit for a couple of years. It hasn't just been around Earth. In 2010, there was an Icarus uh, spacecraft, which was powered by a solar sail and flew to Venus, flew past Venus at a distance of about... 80,000 kilometres. It's beautiful in a way because we've always used navigation of the seas as a kind of metaphor for what we do in space. So it kind of brings it full circle. Yeah, yeah well, absolutely. I, we found that the simile was a good one because it kept giving. And it, it, the title of the piece is uh, Like Gold to Airy Thinness Beat, which is a line from a John Donne poem. And the piece itself is a small boat with a sail unfurling and catching the wind. And it fits into inside a one centimetre cube. And it's uh, painted with uh, gold leaf, covered with gold leaf. I'd never done anything on that kind of t minute scale before. We kind of had to think about how much movement we wanted to let it have in the cube. Because initially, like, I had these lovely, you know, sort of romantic ideas about it kind of floating around in microgravity. But then there is the, also the thing that it does have to survive being launched into space in a rocket. We think it'll be okay, but we can't say for 100% that it's going to survive the journey. At one point, we were going to encase it in resin to protect it and to stabilise it, and we decided not to. 
so yeah, there is real risk there. But even if it does break up, it, there's kind of a, a resonance there because there was a constellation in the, in the sky called Argo, which is the ship, which in 1930, the Inter International Astronomical Union broke into three smaller constellations, Vela the Sail, Pupis the Stern and Carina the Keel. So even if that happens, it has resonance. <laughs> that that would be a piece of luck if it broke up in exactly that nice, tidy way. <laughs> if it does, we're going to pretend we planned that. Yeah, <laughs> Re rename the work. <laughs> and so its audience are the astronauts on uh, the space station. They're the ones who, who will see the 64 artefacts. Other people can see it too, because it's a flat grid and both sides of it are transparent. It's sealed, but transparent on both sides. So one side, will anyone on the space station will be able to see it. But the other side, there's a camera set up so every so often there will be an image that will be uploaded. I'm not sure what you call it, sending an image down to Earth. Is it uploading or downloading? But um, <laughs> we'll be able to see it on Earth too. So I suppose the first thing is get them up there, and that's happening on, on Saturday evening. What, what do you know about that event? Well, they're going from Virginia, from... Um, Wallops Island. Wallops Island. There's an Antares 230 rocket. Uh, this mission is called NG-17. This is Nor uh, Northrop Grumman is the uh, company organising this. And um, it's going up in a Cygnus um, supply ship. And it's only a few minutes. Basically, it'll be pretty much in orbit after about within 10 minutes, I would say. And it will spend about 30 hours to get to the space station and to rendezvous, where it'll be grabbed and by the, uh, the arm that's on the space station and dock. And uh, I believe we just found out today that the gallery will be stored in the Columbus module, which yeah. is the European module, I believe. So if it was floating around there, I think that would be an amazing place for a, whatever the equivalent of a wine and cheese reception is for <laughs> space station. There's 64 pieces there, so I think I heard that the average time spent in front of a piece in a gallery is 27 seconds. So they do yeah. have some time off, not much, but they do have some, yeah. and we hope they'll, they'll have a and we, enjoy. And we I'm sure know they've got 27 seconds. Yes. Yeah. yeah, at least 27 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> they probably are timetable down to the second. Julian Fitzpatrick and Justin Donnelly there, and you can visit the Moon Gallery from the safety of your browser if you have a look at Culture File Pod, where we've tweeted a link. And finally, this time, we have Paddy Woodworth with his latest addition to The Naturalist Bookshelf, a 21st-century bestseller. But don't let that suggest Paddy put you off. Helen MacDonald's H is for Hawk. If you wanted to be bitchy about H is for Hawk, Helen MacDonald's Runaway 2014 bestseller. You could say that this book is all about Helen. At least, that is what Mark Cocker's essay, written a year later, Death of the Naturalist, Why is the New Nature Writing So Tame, seems to suggest. Cocker is himself a distinguished and usually perceptive nature writer, so his words carry some weight. The book's profound impact is not in any doubt, he conceded in The New Statesman. But then he continued, A legitimate question to pose about H's for Hawk is its status as a nature book. He asks why nature writing has become a publishing phenomenon in the last decade, at the very moment when the actual natural world is disappearing before our eyes, ravaged by climate change, habitat destruction, and mass extinction. Is the public, he wonders, seeking comfortable but futile refuge from this catastrophe 
by looking for nature only between the covers of beautifully written books, rather than by striding out to confront its causes. Cocker does raise an important question here, but it's a pity that he uses it as a stick to beat, however gently, writers like MacDonald and even Robert McFarlane. If the broad public does remain indifferent to the biodiversity crisis, that is hardly the responsibility of these authors. On the contrary, MacDonald and MacFarlane both repeatedly express in their books grief and rage at our species' fouling of our own home places, and they urge conservation and restoration. It's also unfortunate that Cocker links this question with what he wrongly believes is a new tendency for nature writers and that he thinks somehow undermines their status in this field. It seems to irk him that they include themselves in the landscapes and species they are exploring and celebrating. He should know full well that there is nothing new about this practice. Many, if not all, of the classics we have taken from our bookshelf for this series are beloved nature books precisely because they interweave the concerns and quirks of their engaging narrators with the natural world they present to us so vividly. Think of Barry Lopez bowing before nesting Arctic birds, or of Annie Dillard's struggle to reconcile nature's exquisite beauty with its dark side of pain and slaughter. Think of the pioneer campaigner against pesticides, Rachel Carson, extolling the wonder of night walks on the beach with her little nephew. Think of Michael Viney's seamless blending of his garden dramas in Mayo with the great issues of conservation. Think of Cocker's own close associate, Richard Maybe, finding a cure for his chronic depression in the playful flight displays of red kites. And if J.A. Baker erases his personality in pursuit of becoming himself a peregrine falcon, that is surely in itself an intensely personal journey. It is true, however, that no one has given us quite as much of themselves in a nature book as Helen MacDonald gives of herself in H's for Hawk. A highly regarded young poet, scholar and naturalist, she found herself struck down by almost unbearable grief on the death of her father. And she seeks refuge in taking on the most notoriously tricky challenge in falconry, the training of a goshawk. These birds of prey, she tells us at the outset, resemble sparrowhawks the way leopards resemble house cats. Bigger, yes, but bulkier, bloodier, deadlier, scarier, and much, much harder to see. She gives her hawk the oddly demure name of Mabel and finds herself led into realms of nature and imagination that are at times exhilarating, often deeply personal and troubling, and ultimately healing. She identifies with the predator and participates in her predations with an intimacy that might have alarmed even J.A. Baker. When Mabel cripples a rabbit, MacDonald observes the pulsing ooze of its blood with fascination, but then she breaks its neck because she wants to end its suffering. Otherwise, Mabel would have eaten the living rabbit in her own time, utterly indifferent to whether her prey was alive or dead 
at any given mouthful. Grim stuff, you might think, but MacDonald uses her entry into the hawk's life to meditate profoundly on our lives and deaths, on democracy and fascism and war, and on the nature of nature and its relationship to culture, and on what we call wildness. And through it all, in a remarkable feat of literary acrobatics, she threads a disturbing biography of T.H. White, author of Our Once and Future King. White, we learn, wrote an even stranger, darker book about goshawks than MacDonald's. H's for Hawk doesn't always work. It's sometimes overblown and melodramatic. But it's much more often very well written. And above all, contrary to Cocker's comments, it is deeply engaged with nature. And, like Mabel the goshawk, it is never, ever tame. Paddy Woodworth there placing Helen MacDonald's H's for Hawk on the Naturalist bookshelf and bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with further merciful interventions next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now. <laughs>